say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. At the end of the Cold War, Estonia, Lithuania, East Germany, Czechia all went through an incredibly tough transition. For many living through it at the time, it would feel like ripping off a band-aid. Painful, but also prescribed. These countries would undertake massive efforts to reform their militaries, their judiciaries, and even force some of their oligarchs to flee or give up parts of their power. But these are large society-shifting changes. But because they endured that short, sharp pain back in the 90s, Russia's shadow in these countries is limited to disinformation campaigns, real estate laundering, and proxy conflicts, and plays far less of a role in the day-to-day machinations of the country. But not every country ripped that band-aid off. Some countries half-tore it off, or picked away the size a little bit, hoping the issue would resolve itself. And one of the examples I'd point to here is the southern European nation of Bulgaria, a country who sits at the thoroughfare between Greek ambitions to influence the Balkans, Turkey's direct route between itself and the economic markets of Europe, Serbia's middleman between Brussels, Ankara and Moscow, and the EU's southern frontier facing the energy-rich Middle East. And whilst Bulgaria is all these things, to some, it's also a backdoor for Russia to interfere into the EU and NATO. In Bulgaria, that band-aid was never ripped off. And when the Bulgarian government came down with the Berlin Wall, many of the transitions it undertook were somewhat surface level. Whilst the flags changed and the leaders wore new pins on their suits, the oligarchs and organized crime still maintained their grip in the country. The military remained still fully equipped by Russian gear. Their energy supply still connected to the Russian infrastructure and their intelligence services still remained intertwined to the men in Moscow who'd given them their orders only a few years earlier. But then the 2000s came along, and there was optimism in Europe, and by bringing Bulgaria inside the European household, the country could be gently nudged into finally ripping off the last of that band-aid. And so, Bulgaria would join NATO in 2004, and the EU in 2007. And whilst the EU gained the source of cheap manufacturing, and NATO gained a direct land corridor connecting its partners in Central Europe to the all-important bases in Turkey, the Russians also potentially gained an influence in these organizations, as the Russian influence within the Bulgarian system never really fully left. Both NATO and the EU now had a country within its organization sitting on the peripheries, with active veto powers on a number of important votes, a country that openly refused to prosecute organized crime and still regularly cozied up to Russia, and in the case of NATO, barely had above 50% of the population possessing even a favorable opinion of the alliance. But policymakers were more than aware that by tossing Bulgaria out, it would only be delivering them directly to Moscow's doorstep, and that most of these problems would be easier to fix when they're working directly with you. That was years ago though, and a younger generation of Bulgarians never lived through the Soviet era. But as much as Russian influence is not what it was, half that band-aid still remains on, and we now see a country increasingly tearing itself in two directions manifesting in the Bulgarians heading to the polls five times in the last two years, as each time the results come back, 
All it shows is more division, further schisms within the country, and no government can be formed. What we see forming in Bulgaria is that on one hand we have a group of people who see the country's future within the EU, who want to integrate further and rip off this band-aid once and for all. And on the other, you still have powerful people with ties back to Russia, intelligence services that have been compromised, politicians who openly preach and praise the Kremlin, and organized crime being wielded as a political weapon by those who know how to use it. So where is the future for Bulgaria? Which group will win out this debate? How much influence do they have inside organizations like the EU or NATO? Are these rumors of Russian influence within the Bulgarian government real, or just Cold War wives' tales? And is the country becoming the unguarded backdoor for Russian oil, money, and politics to enter Europe? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to be answering today. And to help us understand the current landscape inside the country, we're joined to our first guest. Part 1. Moscow's Backdoor Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, since Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, the Bulgarian politics are in a dead-end street. Bulgaria has been unable for the last two years to have a working government, and the president has taken over because the constitution gives the right to the president to appoint caretaker governments. But we only had a very short period of time when we had a, a normal government that was Kirill Petkov's government, and the rest of the time, during those two years, we have been uh, in the midst of a huge, unprecedented uh, political crisis. And uh, we are going to vote in elections uh, again. And who knows, uh, personally, not really optimistic that we will have a normal government again. Georgi Gotev is a journalist and senior editor of Euractiv's Global Europe Policy Hub, and is the editor-in-chief of Euractiv's Bulgarian Edition. Georgi has a diplomatic background and was part of the diplomatic team who opened up the Bulgarian mission to the European communities in 1993. And later on, he was also the spokesman for the Stability Pact of Southeastern Europe. With Euractiv, Georgi writes about a wide range of issues, including EU foreign policy, EU-Russia relations, and the politics of the post-Soviet space. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. There are many political players in Bulgaria that are directly manipulated by Russia or uh, useful idiots, according to the way the Kremlin describes them. We have political parties which are very strongly pro-Russian, like Vazrazdane, uh, means renewal, and they're going up. Uh, they obtain something like uh, 10% at the elections, but they're not the only pro-Russian force. There are others as well. Well, one of the major things we've seen throughout these recent elections in Bulgaria is polarization, with more and more of the vote moving towards fringe parties and candidates moving towards that direction as well. Can you take us through what is driving these shifts in Bulgarian politics? 
polarization takes place because we also have uh, right center-right uh, forces that are genuinely pro-West, pro-Ukraine. Uh, they wish that uh, Bulgaria offers uh, uh, military support uh, to Ukraine. Uh, the Bulgarian president uh, doesn't want that. Uh, from the one side, we have polarization. And on the other side, I think the Bulgarians have changed their attitude toward Russia since Putin started his invasion in the sense that the number of people who condemn Russia and consider what Putin did is basically a crime is growing and the support for Russia as a whole is dropping. History has often put Bulgarians and, and Russians in opposite sides, but those pro-Russian sentiments exist. And uh, due to this war, many Bulgarians uh, no longer automatically favor or follow the pro-Russian trends that, that were a tradition before. The approval rating for Putin in Bulgaria pre-2022 was around 70%. But since the invasion of Ukraine, that's fallen through the floor to around 24%. That 24% of society, though, are often some of the loudest and most passionate about certain causes. And Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, sees some of the most frequent pro-Russia demonstrations anywhere outside the former USSR. One factor I see a lot of people put it down to are these very active WhatsApp and Telegram channels used heavily in Bulgaria. Now, I frequently read the Russia-filtered telegrams thrown out into the Central Asian sphere to usually get a better idea on the narrative Russia's pushing in the region. But these telegrams in the Bulgarian channels are on a whole new level. They often contain conspiracy theories, misinformation, and even far more frequently than I expected, calls to violence. And these telegrams are often blamed for why Bulgaria has some of the lowest approval ratings for NATO anywhere inside the alliance. But in your opinion, how much of an impact do these telegram channels have on Bulgarian politics and society? I have a very good example to, to illustrate this. Of all the EU countries, Bulgaria is largely the last in terms of people who got their vaccine against COVID. And this is very much due to all kinds of conspiracy theories that exist in the internet. Exactly the same people who opposed the vaccination, they also claim that actually it's not Russia that attacked uh, Ukraine, it's the other way around. It's NATO that is attacking Russia and all kinds of uh, other type of conspiracies. Uh, the party Vazrajdane have built their uh, power base during the COVID times and now exactly the same people support Putin in his war against Ukraine. And this is very much against the background of uh, a lot of activity on social media, a lot of fake news, a lot of fake narratives. It seems that it still finds its audience. This is what happens in Bulgaria, unfortunately. And these aren't the only nefarious actors trying to influence the elections here in Bulgaria. Organized crime also does quite a lot in Bulgaria to help certain politicians get up. And it's not unusual to see stories of candidate intimidation, protection rackets, and kickbacks from some parties towards criminal organizations to help them with everything from beating up opposition candidates to paying off police to halt investigations. How deep is organized crime embedded into the political election cycle in Bulgaria? Well, today, organized crime guys, they are white-collar criminals. They have become businessmen, and sometimes uh, we don't know who they are because uh, they like to stay in, in the shade. Indeed, organized crime, uh, corruption, these are the real problems Bulgaria has uh, today, almost 16 years uh, since it uh, joined the European Union. And how has this white-collar crime been allowed to flourish so deeply inside Bulgaria? 
the problem of Bulgaria that corruption functions uh, thanks to an inefficient judiciary system in which even the prosecutor general makes sure that no powerful politician is disturbed by the judiciary. And I'm referring, of course, to uh, the number one party in Bulgaria, that's Boyko Borisov. Uh, Boyko Borisov was the prime minister during almost 12 years, uh, between 2009 and 2021. And this was a very sad period in which not a single reform was made and a period during which clientelism established itself as a political model. This is one of the reasons why we cannot have a working government following the successive elections that we have. This corruption isn't even well hidden though, as if we go back just a couple of years, Boyko Borosov, the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, had a video of his bedroom leaked to the public with the video showing the then Prime Minister and still very influential person in Bulgarian politics with a pistol on his bedside table and drawers full to the brim with stacks of 500 euro notes and gold ingots. In almost any other country, this would be a massive scandal. But looking at the Bulgarian press at the time, the backlash to these videos seemed fairly limited. Can you take us through why? As everything that happens in, in Bulgaria, everyone is aware, but it is like it's normal. Because uh, on the one side, everyone saw the photos, the golden ingots and so on in, in Borisov's bedroom. But on the other side, he says this was so, some sort of uh, manipulation and uh, the prosecutor general is not taking act- action. So he has the benefit of the doubt in a way. And we also have a national sentiment that, well, uh, since he was on power, it was in a way in his right to get his share. And what we saw was, well, it was his share. Fair enough, unfortunately. And it seems very few in the Bulgarian press or judicial system would question how a career politician with an annual salary of 50,000 US dollars had millions of euros worth of gold and notes in his bedside drawers. These stories to me pretty well echo the stories of the late Soviet era in Bulgaria when corruption was pretty rife through the country. But that era is well in the past now. Bulgaria joined the EU back in 2007 and with their entry to the EU, it was expected that a lot of this corruption would disappear. But did joining the EU bring about that change that people envisioned for Bulgaria? Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2007, and many good things have happened since. But nevertheless, there are a lot of people who feel as they were the losers of this major change in our country's history. They haven't benefited, actually, from the chances that most of the population got from the membership to the union. Those people are mostly elderly. A lot of them are very low pensions. And many of them vote for conservative parties. The Bulgarian Socialist Party's Party, for example, in Bulgaria, it's a conservative force. Or they vote for openly pro-Russian forces advocating Bulgaria to leave the EU. During those almost 16 years, the European Union has been unable to control the way the EU money has been spent in Bulgaria. And only recently, since the European Prosecutor Office started work, we have the first attempts to look into major corruption schemes, especially those related to the construction of highways. And the problem there is that the European Prosecutor's Office relies on prosecutors appointed by the Bulgarian Prosecutor General. 
So I'm not very, very optimistic that even the European Prosecutor's Office is going to paradigm shift. But in any case, there we are. The European Union is trying to improve the way it deals with its member countries. They have similar problems in, in Poland, in Hungary. Uh, probably Bulgaria is not uh, the biggest problem, but Bulgaria has problems indeed. But although Bulgaria did join the EU in 07, they joined NATO in 04. And their relationship with NATO has always been complicated, to say the least. According to Pew Research, even at its peak, only 54% of Bulgaria held a favourable opinion of NATO. And even of that razor-thin margin of 54%, only 12% of Bulgarians thought that Bulgaria should respond if NATO were to trigger Article 5. And even since then, Bulgaria has consistently had either the second lowest or lowest approval rating of NATO by any member of the alliance. So how does NATO accommodate this? I know that to try and avoid stoking resentment, they have historically kept their presence in Bulgaria somewhat low-key compared to the US presence in Romania or Turkey. But is this working? And is NATO front of mind for most Bulgarians? Unlike Romania, for example, Bulgaria and Romania are always compared because uh, both countries join NATO at the same time. But unlike Romania, uh, Romania is very much pro-NATO, willing to accept NATO troops and so on. Bulgaria has had the cold feet so far, and whether this is going to continue, I think it very much depends on what kind of majority we will have following these elections. One of the problems is that, unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't have a lot of economic or military interests uh, in Bulgaria as yet. The U.S. remarkably has, on two occasions, uh, named corrupt uh, Bulgarian politicians under the U.S. Global Magnitsky Act. And again, the deficient Bulgarian judiciary system has been unable to hold them responsible for the deeds the U.S. Uh, reproaches to them. But I think in a nutshell, the level of the Bulgarian-U.S. relations is not what it should be. And right now, there is no clear majority that would strongly shift Bulgaria into the camp to which countries like Poland, Romania and the three Baltic states pertain. This may happen in the future, but it's not happening now. And relations between the U.S. and Bulgaria took a further hit when U.S. diplomatic cables accidentally leaked with these cables between U.S. officials accusing Bulgaria of having Russian spies and allies throughout their intelligence services, high courts, foreign office, and senior military. And the Bulgaria was not to be trusted with highly sensitive materials wherever possible. Obviously, there was a lot of reaction to this in Bulgaria, but do you think there's any validity to these U.S. accusations of Russian infiltration within Bulgarian institutions? From experience... NATO or Western intelligence services would be well advised to be careful uh, sharing their information with uh, Bulgarian officials. I think that there may be such a risk. There have been cases uh, highlighted, but probably many cases have not uh, been highlighted or are completely unknown by the authorities. But some Bulgarian uh, officials are eager to make some, by the way, very small money by selling such information to the Russian embassy. This unfortunately happens and law enforcement agents also sometimes uh, sell information to, to to the international organized crime. 
Possibly this is a reason why Bulgaria has not joined the border-free Schengen space, despite the fact that the European Commission says it has fulfilled all the criteria. There is always one, two or three member states who say, uh, hold on, Bulgaria is not, not yet ready. The most critical country has been the Netherlands in the last period. And why don't these courts crack down on this sort of behaviour? At some point, the Bulgarian transition after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when um, the organized crime uh, got organized, basically, the Bulgarian judiciary realized that they needed their share of the cake. And this is the time when the joke appeared saying that in Bulgaria, you don't need uh, to hire uh, an attorney. You can simply buy the court. You can buy the judges. It's cheaper. Time there was also a joke about uh, Osama bin Laden saying that he asked to be tried in Bulgaria because there he could prove uh, his innocence. With Putin's approval rating dropping and distrust of the EU and NATO still permeated through society, who will Bulgaria look to for direction going forward? Is it more likely to be Ankara or Brussels or Moscow or even Beijing? Who will Bulgaria trust? You mentioned Turkey. Let me remind that Bulgaria has a a large Turkish population. If we judge by the election results, it's something like uh, 10% of the population. At the same time, Bulgaria has uh, good relations with uh, Turkey. It really depends on what type of policy Ankara will pursue. During the rule of uh, Boyko Borisov, unfortunately, Bulgaria was acting as a vassal state to Turkey, allowing uh, the extradition of so-called Gulenists without uh, a court decision. A lot is needed for Mr. Erdogan to understand that this this cannot continue and probably will not continue under another government. Regarding uh, other geopolitical players, I think Russia is weak at the time uh, we speak. I think uh, China is not perceived as a threat in Bulgaria, unlike it is the case in the United States or uh, some EU countries uh, such as Lithuania, for example. But at the same time, China is not very active in Bulgaria, uh, or at least its activity is not uh, too obvious. I think uh, Bulgaria has only one way forward, and that's the European Union. It belongs to the European Union. It belongs to the southern part of the European Union. I think it has common interests with countries from the Mediterranean. So hopefully Bulgaria will better integrate in the European Union, will seek more allies among the countries uh, that I mentioned. To start with, uh, Bulgaria needs a stable government, a government that will make a difference, because Bulgaria needs to make a difference from what it was until now. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches 
April 9th. So Bulgarians seem to have a distrust of many of the region's players. And for some, that position may be understandable. The EU never bought in these sweeping changes that many thought they would. The Americans accused Bulgaria of being untrustworthy. The Russians revealed themselves to be not the benevolent regional partner that many believed they may be. And Turkey has been flexing its muscles inside of Bulgaria for a while now. So where will Bulgaria go now? Who will they look to hitch their future onto? And how will other players like Serbia and China factor into this new sphere? Would we'll answer that? We'll turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Crowded Neighborhood Well, even though Bulgaria has joined the EU, which has helped a little bit, a lot of its institutions are still quite fragile and mired by a lot of corruption. Russian influence is still quite prominent in a lot of policy-making circles. And as you can tell with all the latest corruption investigations as well, that's still something that hampers Bulgaria's prospects at developing. Geographically, as well as politically, it's still on the periphery of a lot of European policy makers. Daniela Juvella is a geopolitical risk analyst with the Fortescue Metals Group, specializing in the Balkans, Eastern Europe, and the South Caucasus. She's worked with non-governmental organizations in Bosnia, Ukraine, India, and Myanmar, and serves on a foreign affairs committee for the Australian government. And on top of that, she's also one of the senior analysts here at The Red Line, and we're thrilled to have on the program today. It's the classic Russian playbook that you see in other regions as well. Russia still has a dominance in the energy market, as well as Russia has cultivated strong political ties with a lot of members of parliament. Russia has been able to capitalize on a lot of this very anti-Western, Eurosceptic view. A trend we do see elsewhere in the former Soviet space is that whilst the population's view toward Moscow changes and the people might be seeking a different direction for their country, the nation's powerful oligarchs, business leaders, judges, and even political leadership are all still somewhat holdovers from the Soviet era. And in such, many still have deep ties with Russia. Is that situation that we see in other countries, and particularly in Central Asia, also a factor here in Bulgaria? Yeah, you can definitely draw parallels between the Central Asian countries, especially in the information environment too, where the same propaganda narratives are being promulgated. You can see that, especially in the case of Serbia, where Vucic has had long-standing ties with Putin and a lot of his support base in the SNS party, they're very pro-Russia as well as being far-right nationalistic. There is still so many politicians in the region that you can see they just have really close ties with Russia. If we put aside the oligarchs for a minute and just look at the people of these countries, the sentiment toward Russia, particularly Putin, has dramatically changed since the invasion of Ukraine. Even in Bulgaria, one of the often more pro-Russia countries of the Balkans, approval of Putin has dropped from 70 to 24%. Is this a trend we're seeing right across the majority of the Balkans at the moment? The war has had a two-pronged approach. The people that didn't really have those those views that were sympathetic to Russia, like in Kosovo and Albania, for instance, they were more pro-EU aligned. That amplified that sentiment, whereas in other parts of the region, like in Bulgaria and Serbia and in parts of Bosnia as well, that's amplified a lot of ultra-nationalist thinking. 
and in Serbia, you even saw Russia's Wagner Group announce on Telegram that they opened up a new information centre in Belgrade. So to me, that this suggests that their overt presence in Serbia indicates that the Kremlin is interested in bolstering ties in Serbia, but as well as the region too. So there has been a noticeable increase in cooperation between a lot of these governments, as well as the Russian military and intel services and its proxies in Serbia. Again, specifically, you saw that when the intel chief was appointed last December, and he's been a vocal proponent of abandoning Serbia's EU candidacy in general. So the same can be said for a lot of fringe societies in Bulgaria too. It's been been able to capitalise on this sense of we've been forgotten about by the Western Europeans and Russia kind of fills that void, whether you agree with it or not, that these sentiments have been there for decades and this has just given them ammunition to thrive. When Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, 95% of Bulgaria's gas imports and 60% of the country's oil imports came from Russia, with much of the country's oil imports ending up the Netlochan Burgas refinery on Bulgaria's east coast refinery operated by Russian oil company Lukoil. Out of all the EU nations, it was Bulgaria that was probably the most dependent on Russian oil at the time of invasion. So to prevent breaking the Bulgarian economy, the EU gave Bulgaria a waiver to continue to import Russian oil and gas without any discipline from the EU. Then Bulgaria continued to do so, even ramping up its production of oil. Over the next few months, Russian imported goods to Bulgaria would nearly double the amount that they were in 2021, and Russia would overtake Germany to become Bulgaria's overall largest trading partner. And just a few months in, Bulgaria would be importing over double the amount of oil they were in 2021. But whilst on one hand Bulgaria was cozying up to Russia, Russia would discover that Bulgaria was refining the oil given to them to produce refined diesel that it would then give to Ukraine via Poland in order to fight the Russians. So some of the oil that Russia was giving to Bulgaria was ending up in the tanks that were fighting Russia and Ukraine. And in response, Gazprom, the major gas importer into Bulgaria, would put sanctions onto Bulgaria in April of 2022. Other Russian gas companies can still sell into Bulgaria, but because of this, Bulgarian gas imports from Russia have dropped by nearly 60% over the year, with the country instead ramping up its imports from Azerbaijan. But if we look at the bigger picture, their oil from Russia has nearly doubled, and they are still taking advantage of their EU exemption to buy up cheap Russian gas and large amounts of Russian oil, refine it and sell it into the inflated European markets. And yet, whilst this was going on, Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov made a big show of supporting Ukraine, being the one to kick off the program of sending diesel to the Ukrainians. They were vocally supporting Ukraine, whilst also ramping up the imports of oil from Russia, having their cake and eating it too. So if the Bulgarian economy was so reliant on Russian energy, and evidentially they aren't willing to go through any sort of massive decoupling from Moscow energy-wise, why would Petkov take as strong a stance in Ukraine as he did? Responsible Bulgaria was interesting, especially because historically it's been the most pro-Russia NATO country. But at the same time, as you said, the Bulgarian economy was struggling and it necessitates a lot of EU financial assistance as well. It's also looking to link up its gas markets and its infrastructure with Turkey so it can be this linchpin between Europe and South Caucasus and Central Asia as well as through Turkey too. So to do that, it had to kind of show political willingness to align with the EU. But at the same time, that wasn't without issue because a lot of factions within the government were pro-Russia, so that's caused a lot of internal divisions. And with elections coming up, that's creating a lot of political uncertainty as well. So the EU must be aware of all this. And yet, they're talking about expanding pipe capacity that goes through Turkey into Bulgaria and then on to Central Europe. 
So why would the EU still want to expand gas infrastructure here where they're still taking in large amounts of Russian oil rather than, let's say, running more pipelines across the Adriatic? Well, firstly, just from an economical standpoint, it's a lot cheaper to put pipelines on the ground than through the sea, and that comes with its own array of issues. It's also part of EU foreign policy to kind of establish goodwill within this region, especially with their other partners who have historically aligned more with Russia. So it kind of gives them an ability to establish a bit of goodwill with Bulgaria, as well as if you were to put pipelines in the Western Balkans, we have a lot of simmering tension there and conflict so it would just be it would make more sense from a security perspective to put the pipelines in eastern balkans rather than in the western region where investment in this area has stagnated for a while this giant loophole allows the eu to import russian oil through bulgaria and have it labeled on paper as bulgarian oil but at least gas is not going down the same road as bulgarian gas imports have gone right down and continue to do so and instead, Bulgaria is buying up Aziri gas coming in through Azerbaijan. But Azerbaijan isn't under EU sanctions either. So is there a risk of Azerbaijan doing the same thing that Bulgaria is and buying up Russian gas to then export to Bulgaria as Aziri gas using the same loophole except for gas rather than oil? This is a similar situation in Azerbaijan, where Azerbaijan is still able to get a lot of energy imports from Russia and then re-export it to Europe. And this has drawn a lot of criticisms from a lot of different groups because it's essentially the same hydrocarbons but with a different stamp on it. And this is a really big criticism, I guess, of the sanctions environment. Well, it's just the classic balancing act right now. Europe's desperate to hurt the Russians, but they also at the same time don't want to collapse their energy market. So this backdoor alternative, I guess, although it's not a perfect system, it allows them to politically hurt Russia. It allows countries to stand together in solidarity and make a political and symbolic statement. And it is still costing Russia money. They are making less per barrel, but at the same time, they're hurting Russia's bottom line too, and they're at the same time um, putting money into countries like Azerbaijan and Bulgaria, which it is on their policy priorities to foster a better relationship with them. Again, it's not a perfect system, definitely has its faults, but this is what we're seeing played out both in Azerbaijan as well as Bulgaria. But how is this backdoor system costing Russia money? Because they have to go through Bulgaria and Azerbaijan, so they these countries and the governments take a cut. So instead of Russia having a dominance now, being able to put it out just purely through their pipelines, it has to go through a secondary one. And then through that, the governments in Bulgaria and Azerbaijan take a cut. So these exemptions that Bulgaria takes advantage of finish up in 2024. So what will Bulgaria and the EU do at that point? It's really difficult to tell. It depends entirely on how the conflict in Ukraine ends up within the next year or two. And it's also going to depend on the political will of European countries as well. We're already seeing a lot of domestic situations arise in a lot of countries where it's not popular to be spending all this money on sanctioning Russia. So it's really hard to tell. It just depends where the situation is in Ukraine. But potentially Russia could move its oil to other countries that aren't in the EU. So countries like Georgia, Turkey and Azerbaijan. So it's unclear whether Bulgaria will be able to capitalise on this in two years' time. So China's also been starting to invest large amounts of money into this region. What would they be hoping to achieve here? There are lots of countries in this region that are investing. Interestingly, Hungary is investing in the region, same as Italy. Italy's interested more in Western Balkans, um, the same as Turkey too. There are a lot of historical factors there for why Turkey can be 
an attractive partner to some countries. And increasingly, China, as you said as well, pretty much since the global financial crisis, China has been steadily increasing a lot of its economical and political influence in the region. But as for the level of engagement that China has in the region, it varies. They're most prominent in Serbia, and then it goes down to fewer projects in Montenegro, then Albania, Bosnia, North Macedonia, very limited presence in Kosovo. Their projects have mainly been focused on a lot of infrastructure, construction, energy. The one that's been quite contentious was in Montenegro, and a lot of people were criticising this project that was going to connect, like a motorway connecting the bar port to the Serbian border. And this one generated a lot of criticism because the, the deal was made under not the most transparent circumstances and increased Montenegro's debt and employment was pretty much going to a lot of Chinese workers instead of domestic ones. But then you go to Serbia, which has probably been the closest ally to China. China's investments are definitely the most prolific in Serbia. They range from a bunch of railway projects as well as to the energy market, thermal power plants. And something that's been attracting a bit of international attention is how Serbia's also been procuring a lot of Chinese military and defence equipment. So that's caught the eye of a lot of analysts as well. But principally, China is just active in this region because of the, its proximity to Europe and how it can form as a logistical hub for a lot of Chinese markets as well as its surveillance technologies too. So they're quite active in this economical sense. And what about Chinese investment into Bulgaria and Romania? With Romania, it's pretty much been a lot of energy investments. And with Bulgaria, it's a bit of a mixed image. So Bulgaria has tried to get a lot of Chinese investment, but because they're trying to realign their position closer to the EU, they've gotten a lot of criticism from that. So it's been a bit of a mixed bag in Bulgaria. And where do you see the trend lines going? Outside of the EU, which countries are said to become much larger players within the Bulgarian economy in the future? Difficult to say, but it seems like despite everything that's going on in Turkey, that might be the most attractive and viable option for Bulgaria, especially with a lot of infrastructure, gas infrastructure going from Turkey and then through Bulgaria and into European markets. Again, this is hard to say until after we've had the elections and we can see the makeup of the Bulgarian government. I would just say, given the fact that Russian influence has been deeply entrenched in Bulgaria for a long time, I just I can't see a situation where Bulgaria would be able to get rid of that influence entirely. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So Bulgaria is trying to have its cake and eat it too. And much like the fractious political system that's seen the Bulgarians head to the polls five times in two years, their interstate diplomacy is also a carefully precarious stack of rhetoric, actions, and finances. But how has the war in Ukraine and internal politics changed this precarious balance? And how does Bulgaria plan to assert itself into growing Balkan issues? And what will the government and oligarchs do if the majority of the country continues to push away from Russia and toward the EU? Well, to answer that, we're doing our final guest. Part 3. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts.
politically, there are many changes, both in terms of the nature of the political system. We have had a government for seven months, and, uh, and actually ever since the president has been ruling with the so-called caretaker government, uh, which is supposed to prepare uh, now the elections on the 2nd of April. But this changed the nature of the system because it gave actually quite a lot of power to a president who in our constitution is only more or less a figurehead. Vesela Geneva is the deputy director of the European Council on Foreign Relations and the head of ECFR's SOFIA office, with a work specializing in EU foreign policy and the Balkans and Black Sea region. Between January and July 2022, she also held the position of foreign policy advisor to the Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov, covering the all-important period of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. From 2010 to 2013, she was also the spokesman for the Bulgarian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and a member of the Foreign Minister Nikolai Mladenov's political cabinet. She was also previously the secretary of the International Commission on the Balkans and a political officer to the Bulgarian Embassy in Washington, D.C. And we're thrilled to have her back on the program today. The popularity of NATO has been constantly on the decline for the past 10-15 years. I think this is mainly due to the Bulgarian political discourse. A lot of uh, Bulgarian politicians have been very silent about NATO as a security provider. And really, currently, the approval rates of NATO are around uh, 35%, which is still higher than that of Russia, which has not been the case prior to the beginning of the war. Having said that, NATO is clearly the big framework for our security. And I think it's a, a mix of public diplomacy, loopholes, but also for the past 15 years, Bulgaria has missed, fortunately, many chances in modernizing its army and its defense. And again, this is a mix of political, bad political decisions, but also calculations that we can continue using Russian know-how and Russian servicing and, and so on and so forth. I think now it became clear finally that this should be stopped. And I believe if there is a stable government after the 2nd of April elections, this is going to be one of the first consequences. Bulgaria will have to very rapidly modernize its defense. With you working at the very heart of this, what was your response to these leaked US cables accusing Bulgarian intelligence services of being somewhat compromised with the Russian government? I mean, look, unfortunately, I think they're accurate. The question is, how do you measure that? On many occasions, I have witnessed really decisions by representatives of Bulgarian institutions, which are very questionable, to put it mildly, and which I could explain only by really foreign influence. The question is much more, and this is the more interesting, I think, issue, is how do you make institutions basically more robust? How do you make them not so easy to be penetrated by third parties? And I think this is one advantage, quote unquote, that Russia has had here. Russia realized long ago that corruption and institution weaknesses 
can be used by Moscow to advance their agenda. So my short answer is yes, there is quite a lot of malign influence in Bulgarian institutions. That influence goes via established channels of corruption and actually it is about strengthening Bulgarian institutions first and foremost. Is it just Russia taking advantage of this or are other players like China possibly using these same corruption networks to get their own influence inside Bulgaria? Much less. China is actually going much less on the, let's say, central level, on the government level. Chinese have been interested in bits and pieces, more on the municipal level, local level, enterprises, and so on and so forth. So far, I think this infrastructure, corruption-based infrastructure, has been used mostly and almost exclusively uh, by the Russians. But again, it could be used also by others if they would need to, unless we really take care of closing those loopholes. Well, what about the other big player in this story here, Turkey? How would you describe the current relationship between Sofia and Ankara? It is a good relationship. Bulgaria signed recently with Turkey an agreement to access Turkish gas transmission system with view of using Turkish LNG terminals, but also having Turkey resale gas that comes into its own system. This was an important factor for diversifying away from Russian gas. Of course, there is Russian gas and Russian interest in the Turkish system, quite clearly. But at least there is some sort of a risk distribution in that move. Other than that, Turkey is clearly a route for migrants and the Bulgarian-Turkish border is therefore very important to be managed well from both sides, which means that Bulgaria and Turkey have to really maintain good relations because for Turkey, this border is the entry point to the rest of Europe. There are 4,000 trucks waiting at the border every day, and this is probably the second busiest border crossing in Europe. And for Bulgaria, it's important that Turkey helps prevent the illegal crossings, especially of migrants, but also um, all sorts of illicit goods and so on. Well, if we now look to Bulgaria's western border with Serbia, we have seen big news coming out of that region this morning, with Serbia and Kosovo finally reaching an agreement to begin work towards normalization between the two. How is Bulgaria likely to react to this? I think it is in the interest of the whole region that Kosovo and Serbia find a solution. For Bulgaria, this is one open wound less on the Balkans and one that has also attracted a lot of attention by Russia. Russia has been using Serbia's position and interest in this issue to basically widen uh, the Russian influence in the Balkans. And from a rational perspective, closing the Serbia-Kosovo issue would should be actually very welcome by all Balkan countries because this has been going on for too long. Having a country like Kosovo, which is half recognized 
which cannot apply for membership even in the Council of Europe. This is bringing on instability. Well, another national candidate looking to move further into Europe is North Macedonia, who historically have had a complicated relationship with Bulgaria, to put it mildly. Bulgarian nationalists have always stated that they would veto any move to include North Macedonia within the EU. But do you think the Bulgarian government would actually go against Brussels and veto this move when it comes down to it? I've always thought that this whole veto business, especially when it comes to neighbours, uh, is really not productive and is really not efficient in terms of the results we want to achieve. If Bulgaria really wants to have a neighbour which is well meant, which, uh, which pays attention to the rights of the Bulgarians, which wants to trade and wants to see Bulgarian investment and so on and so forth, you have to create the environment for that. And it seems to me that for a very long time, the Bulgarian veto power has been used domestically here to actually change the agenda a little bit or to refocus the agenda away from other domestic issues, the Magnitsky sanctions, the Russian influence and so on. It's always very easy to use nationalistic slogans when you want to move people's attention away from corruption, for example. What the Petkov government achieved, um, and this was also one of my tasks when I was working for it, to basically lift the current veto and to make sure that the, the rights of the Bulgarians are guaranteed, but also to make sure that the bilateral relation has an avenue to develop. And you know, you can always come back to a veto as we go forward. But I think everybody in Bulgaria has understood that the price the country would pay for that would be very high. So I really think that the best way to deal with the bilateral relationship is by talking to your neighbor rather than uh, looking constantly for ways to punish him. So you were Prime Minister Petkov's foreign policy advisor when Russia went into Ukraine in 2022. And from the very start of that conflict, Bulgaria began to send diesel and assistance to Ukraine and also vocally demonstrated their support for the Ukrainian resistance. These supplies of diesel and weapons that were sent to Ukraine were absolutely timely and crucial and probably helped the Ukrainians stave off the invasion. But it was Petkov's support of Ukraine that ultimately allowed the far right of the parliament to rally other Russian-leaning parties and force a no-confidence vote and subsequent dissolution of the Petkov government in August, just under 10 months into Petkov's government. So why would Petkov choose to back Ukraine even when it was detrimental to his political career? What I can say is that it was quite clear from the beginning of the war that the government would be very much helping Ukraine as much as possible by facilitating ammunition deliveries, by facilitating oil deliveries, by hosting more than 100,000 refugees, by also helping create the first sanctions packages against Russia at the European level, and so on. And I think Petkov and his ministers, or most of his ministers, were quite clear that there would be a political cost for that. And they were ready to pay it because they realized that this was actually a battle of epic proportions that was very close to home. 
then it was also a battle for our own security that the Ukrainians were carrying forward. I can always respect a man who sticks to his principles. But looking to Turkey now, where there are these pipelines being proposed that will carry Turkish gas through Bulgaria into Central Europe. Is Bulgaria looking to encourage this, hoping to get some of the transit fees and money that comes off this project? I mean, for the moment, the pipeline gas is not even the cheaper option anymore. And it's clearly the riskier option because we have actually Russian pipeline gas, we have some Turkish mix, and most of the diversification comes through LNG. The Russian pipeline gas goes through Bulgaria to Serbia and Ukraine and uh, Hungary. Currently, we are, I think, in need of more interconnectors. There is one being built with Serbia, which would bring non-Russian gas to Serbia as well. There needs to be one built with North Macedonia. The interconnector with Greece was a great achievement of the Petkov government. This is a pipeline that has been in the works for the past 12, 13 years, and there there had been no end in sight for a very long time. But now it's in the system, it's working, and it delivers also alternatives to Bulgaria and can be used to deliver gas further north, including to Moldova and to Ukraine one day. All in all, our region, which has been some sort of an energy island in terms of connectivity, it has not been well connected within the region and with other European regions, will have to really pay attention more and more to to interconnections. And I think this is already happening. Where does the future for Bulgaria sit, though? Should the country be moving further towards the EU, towards Turkey, toward Russia? What do you think the best path forward for Bulgaria will be? Look, Bulgaria is a EU member, and there is no such thing as they, the EU. It's us, the EU. And I think uh, this is one one thought we need to really apply more. We need to be more active uh, when shaping the policies. We need to be moving from the periphery much more to the center of European debates. And this is going to be the big task of the next government. So whoever wins on the 2nd of April will have to really change Bulgaria's standing within the EU but also make Bulgarians understand that it's also their will and their concerns and their aspirations that the EU should uh, be taking care of. We are currently behaving as, you know, objects of the EU. It's the EU telling us to do this reform, it's the EU pushing us to do that transition, but actually it's about our own sense of fairness that should push us to do the judicial reform. It's our own ambition to modernize that should push us to do the energy transition. And the EU just provides additional tools and incentives for all of that. I think similarly to, let's say, Slovakia, but also to an extent probably to Romania and others, to the Czech Republic, we do have our own internal war going on. It's much less visible than the one in Ukraine uh, because it's not 
fortunately not done with rockets and cannons. But it is a war of narratives, it is a war of worldviews, it is a political war, but also to an extent an economic war, a civilizational war too. And what is at stake here is how much we allow Russian, the, the so-called Ruskimir Russian world, stretch into EU and NATO countries and how much pushback Moscow can get. Again, speaking about corruption, but also speaking about media, about their presence in uh, political parties and so on. And I think this is a battle that is a bit overlooked in the West simply because our countries are still a bit seen as natural in-between space, if you will. And I really think that the Ukrainian victory, hopefully sooner rather than later, all of that is going to radically change uh, because we need this radical change. And the EU really needs, uh, and the West in general needs to think more about how to resist this kind of Russian encroachment that has been allowed in the past 30 years to slowly win back crowns in countries like Bulgaria. Bulgaria is being pulled in all directions, and I don't completely blame the Bulgarian people for that. Policymakers regularly complain about the amount of Russian influence in the Bulgarian telegram and TV channels, but then also don't put any effort into making pro-Western Bulgarian language content for citizens to consume. European analysts may waggle their fingers at Bulgaria taking advantage of the energy loophole to sell Russian oil into Europe, but it's mostly the Europeans buying that oil. When those countries are buying the oil, well aware of where it comes from, and I don't see many of them hurrying to close that loophole anytime soon. Even the US, who complain about Russian influence within the intelligence services, have also kept the Bulgarian intelligence services at arm's length for decades now, and hardly taken the time to teach them how to root this out. And those US diplomatic cables leaking have just confirmed what many Bulgarians perceived the US to view them to be anyway. Bulgaria needs to begin a massive undertaking to be able to rebuild and restock their institutions with a new generation of Bulgarians. A generation that don't see themselves as beholden to Moscow or Brussels, but instead work for the benefit of the Bulgarian citizens. But to actually do this will take hard and painful reforms, and will almost certainly further divide an already schismed country. Bulgaria may be willing to do the work, but Brussels can't expect Bulgaria to do it alone. Thank you so much for everyone who checked out the show this week. This episode got more and more odd the further we dug into it, and there was even more here that came out in the research that we figured may be better off with its own 90-minute piece rather than to not do it justice and try and fit it in here. So keep your eyes peeled for that. If you want to be alerted right away when that piece does drop and keep up to date with everything else we've got coming out here by either visiting our website, theredlivepodcast.com, or by finding our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok, on the handle at the Red Lion Pod. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elite Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I want to thank Robert Durrett, Armin Nassar, Nunn, Tony, Michael Comboy, and Travis Russell, who are the latest Patreons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners 
who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this thing going. And we really cannot thank them enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars and you like what we do here, we greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on the geopolitics of Bulgaria is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Shadowplay, Behind the Lines and Under Fire, The Inside Story of Europe's Last War, by friend of the show, Tim Marshall. I think the title may need updating, but the book is a fantastic insight into the Balkan Wars and the interplay between these states. The second is Balkan Ghosts, by another friend of the show, Robert D. Kaplan, for a great insight into the entire Balkans region. And the third is Bulgaria, Environmental, Social and Economic Challenges by Diodora Raya Danilov, for an in-depth look at the social issues present within Bulgaria today. I also want to say thanks to this week's guests, Georgi Gotev, Daniela Jivella, and Vesela Cheneva. I cannot tell you how few people actually take the time to study the complexities of Bulgaria. So it was amazing to have people on this week's panel who actually understand this complicated country. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Jivella, Genevieve Donald May, Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Almad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tano, our media director, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Sean Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. It's this team that make the show possible and help us chase bigger and better stories. So if you like what we do here at the show, this team is probably the reason you like it. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.